If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at The Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Everybody good? All right, let's open up Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, and we will pray. Lord, we remind ourselves this morning that what we're opening at this time are the holy words of God Almighty that you have spoken to us. We want to give them the reverence that they are due. We want to give them the attention placed in our life and obedience that they are due. And so we freshly surrender. We ask you to speak to us, Lord, to place within us right attitudes, right thinking that will mold us into right character, your character. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our study through the book of Romans, as you're well aware. And if you remember back to last week, last week's text was all about how we are to relate to God as the redeemed of Christ. Do you guys remember that? And we talked about how God views us now, how he wants us to view him, and how we are supposed to approach him. And what we learned in last week's text was absolutely amazing, was it not? That we are sons and daughters of God. That we are adopted, meaning that there is this unearned love and acceptance. That we are His children. That we are to approach Him as Abba, Father. This term of endearment, meaning Daddy. And so the bottom line last week was that God, the creator of everything that we know, wants to have a personal relationship with His people. And that's amazing. And that is a mind-blowing truth from the Word of God. Sometimes we probably get too used to hearing it. And it's like, yeah, yeah, he wants a personal relationship. No, the God creator of everything that we know wants to be intimate in your life. He wants to be involved in the details of your life. And we worship God for those truths, for being that amazing and being that loving. But there are a lot of people that would want to stop there. There are a lot of people that only want to hear that part of what it means to follow Christ. And there are an awful lot of people that would buy in at this idea of just a a loving God. If we were only to give people the upside of Christianity, a whole lot more people would jump on board. If we were to only tell them that he loves at an unfathomable level, that he gives us this ultimate sense of belonging, that there is this deep, unshakable joy and peace that is available in Christ, that we can get guidance for this life and eternal life for the life after this life. There's a whole lot of people who'd like to get involved in that, right? And of course, all of those things are true and available to the follower of Christ. But that is horribly unbalanced, isn't it? If we were just to tell people that that is the full extent of the Christian experience, it's kind of an easy believism 
a flowery form of Christianity. But of course, Scripture will have no part in that unbalance, in that type of a deception. And while God genuinely wants us to know and to feel the fullness of His love and joy as a part of being a child of God, He also tells us the truth, doesn't He? That while following Christ in this world is always worth it, it's not always easy. It's always worth it, but it's not always easy. In fact, Jesus Himself guarantees, does He not, that it'll get pretty hard at times. And so after our amazing, beautiful, uplifting text last week, we come to verse 17, and verse 17 spoils everything, right? Because when we started in verse 14, it was saying we're sons and daughters. We're not slaves anymore. Down to verse 15, we're adopted. We're we're now to call uh, God Abba, Father, and we're His heirs. Now look at verse 17. And if we're children of God, we're heirs also and heirs of God, and fellow heirs of Christ. We'd love to stop there, wouldn't we? Because then it says, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we might be glorified with Him. It all sounded really good right up to that suffering part. But pain and suffering is a reality, isn't it? Of living as fallen people in a fallen world. The world is full of brokenness, broken people. Things are not right now the way that God intended things to be. When God created, He created everything right and good. When humanity sinned and rebelled against God, the world fell into corruption. And Christians, of course, are not immune to that. Suffering is a reality for Christians as well, even though there are those that will teach The opposite, that if you become a Christian, everything's gravy from here on out. We know different, don't we? And Jesus never made out like it was going to be easy, did he? He promised that in this world we would have tribulation in John chapter 16, verse 33. And there is tribulation, is there not? And it comes in all different forms. There is persecution. That's one form. Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, right? He went on to say, if they hated me, they'll hate you because of me. And ever since he said that, there's always been somewhere in the world where Christians are persecuted. Not everywhere in the world and not every Christian is persecuted, but somewhere in the world they are. Here in America, we don't, we don't really suffer large-scale persecution, do we? I mean, you may get passed up for a promotion at work, or somebody might make fun of you, or you might have got shunned by a friend when you became a Christian, or rejected by a family member when you decided to follow Christ. Those things happen, but we don't experience the large-scale persecution. But we remind ourselves that Paul is writing to the Roman church. This is a letter that'll be read in Rome somewhere right around 57 to 58 AD. And they were just starting to feel the rumblings of persecution at that time under the emperor Nero. In 64 AD under Nero, persecution would break out widespread across the whole Roman world. Nero was an absolute psychopath. 
and he was notorious for impaling Christians and burning them while they were impaled. And there is a very, very good chance that many of the original recipients of this letter, as it's being read to the church in Rome in 57 or 58, are going to be a part of that martyrdom under Nero. So this is very real world stuff for them. And then after that, for nearly 300 years, Christians were persecuted within the Roman world by various different degrees, by various different emperors, depending on how anti that emperor was. Several emperors had tried to make official attempts to wipe out Christianity altogether. Several of the Roman emperors made it a capital offense to be a Christian and ordered all Christian documents to be burned in an effort to wipe out Christianity altogether. And to this day, there's always somewhere on this globe, is there not, where there is heavy persecution. There's a lot lot of places in our world right now where that is the case. So so persecution is one form of suffering. But what we're going to see in our text today is that suffering is not just persecution, but it all comes with being a fallen people in a fallen world. So that would include things like disease, that's suffering, right? Famine, natural disasters, relational pains and brokenness between people, hurting people and and, and hurtful people, people that hurt other people. And I, I think we could all agree there's just no shortage of brokenness around us. And Paul is the perfect guy to really talk about hardship. If you're going to listen to a guy that's going to tell you about hardship, you want, you want it to come from a guy that's had a little bit of, of stuff, right? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about his life. He says this, beginning in verse 23. He says, I've been in far more labors, far more imprisonment. I've been beaten times without number. He can't even remember how many times he's been beaten. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. How many of us can say that? Like I've been in three shipwrecks. A night and a day I spent in the deep, meaning that he was like lost at sea for a whole night and a day. I've been in frequent uh, journeys, in dangers of rivers, dangers of robbers, dangers of countrymen, dangers of the Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. Pretty much everywhere he went, it was just danger. And I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from external things such as these, there is the daily pressure on me of the concern for the churches. And so Paul knew hardship. He knew suffering. And we understand that the issue of suffering is the reason that a lot of people reject Jesus, isn't it? They'll say something to the effect of, if God were really this God of love, And if God were really all-knowing, and if God were really all-powerful, therefore able to do something about it, why is there suffering? 
Why is there persecution? Why is there disease, natural disaster, injustice? Why is there car accidents? Why is there homelessness? Why is there all this brokenness in our world? Why doesn't God just stop it all? Because I don't want to suffer. I don't like pain. I don't like hardship. I don't like loss. So why doesn't he just stop it? Well, there's a lot involved in answering that question. Some of it we won't get to, but I'll say this from the beginning of it. All of the brokenness that we know in our world is a result of humanity's sin and rebellion against God that brought about the fall, right? And so while God is a God of love, He's also a God of justice, and He had to judge the sin at the fall. And so all of that brokenness is our fault anyway. But here's the major thing that I want to get down to on this. And that is, when you ask that question, it is a short-sighted question because it's only concerned with the here and now. It's not taking into consideration that God is going to do something about all the brokenness, all of the corruption, all of the pain, all of the disease, all of these things will be dealt with. They will all be done away with. And so any real understanding of why God allows something to happen now has to first be understood in light of eternity. Jesus never said that it would be any different than that. That's the world that we live in. Suffering now, glory later. Jesus said in John, again in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Notice what you're supposed to have. You're supposed to have peace. In the world, in the temporary, in the here and now, you're going to have what? Yeah, tribulation, suffering. But take courage, I've overcome the world. Now we remind ourselves that when Jesus wrote this, his disciples were incredibly troubled. They had been told that Jesus was going to be arrested, mistreated, and ultimately killed. He was, they were told that they were going to flee in fear and all desert him. They were told all of these bad things were coming upon them in the very, very near future. Peter was told that he was going to be put to death and martyred, you know, and so they're a very troubled bunch. But what is Jesus telling them? Don't get too worried about the tribulation of this world. It's not really that big a deal. Why? Because There's way more beyond this world. I've overcome this world. There's a whole lot more on the other side than there is on this side. And so what he's trying to instill in you and I, whatever we go through, whatever pain we suffer, whatever disease we contract, whatever um, horrible things somebody does to us, whatever happens, we got to view it all with an eternal perspective. This is not the way that it'll always be. And see, that's the point that Paul's making in verse 18. So look at verse 18. What does he say? For I consider the sufferings of this present time are what? Not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. Suffering and glory. These are themes throughout the Bible. Suffering and glory were both the experience of Jesus Christ and suffering and glory are both the experience of his people now. 
we have been united in Christ in both of these things. We're united in Christ in the sufferings that are attached to ministry in this fallen world, and we're united with Christ in the glory that is to be revealed in the life after them. The sufferings of this present day and the glory to be our comfort. Jesus always told us it would be that way, did he not? We'll suffer in this world. There will be hardship. There will be tribulation. But there is glory beyond. He comforts us with this. He comforted his disciples with it. In that same context of telling them, about all of the bad things that was about to happen to him in just a few hours, that he would be arrested, that they would flee in fear, and all of the things that were attached to that. He said this in John chapter 14. He said, do not let your heart be troubled. So Jesus just told them, he's dying, he's going away, they're going to be scared and flee. He says, don't worry about that. Don't let your heart be troubled. Have faith. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Why? Because in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. And then what does he say? For where I am, there you will be also. He says, guys, things are going to get really dark. Your next few days, he was telling them, are going to be really dark and really hard. Don't even worry about that. Don't even sweat that stuff. Because no matter what happens, guess what's going on? I'm going to prepare a place for you, and where I am, there you will be. That was the point of verse 18. Suffering and glory are inseparable in the Christian experience, but they're not comparable. That's what we got to get a hold of, church. Suffering and glory are inseparable in the Christian experience, but they're not comparable. They are beyond comparison. The suffering that we know now and the glory that is to come. Paul says a very similar thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at what it says here. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond all comparison. I like the way the New Living Translation puts this verse. It it puts it like this. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. And so what are we to do about it? So we don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. Why? Because Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. So we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things that we see now, they'll soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. Now, go go back to that last slide. For 2 Corinthians 4.17, that one. After reading the hardship of Paul's life there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I've been beaten, I've been, I've been you know, imprisoned more than I can remember, I've been, you know, had the 39 lashes, I was shipwrecked, I was lost at sea for 24 hours, I've been in hardship, I've been cold, I've been hungry. All the things that he was saying in there, isn't it interesting that he says, 
it's just momentary light affliction. Just momentary light affliction, not, not really big. Man, if I had gone through all those things, I'd get up here every week and just remind you about it and how heavy it is and how gnarly I am. Like, let me tell you guys, I know I told you last week, let me tell you how many times I've been beaten. Let me tell you about when I was shipwrecked. Let me tell you about my imprisonments, right? What does Paul say about it? Not a big deal. Just this momentary light affliction of 30 years of being persecuted. And what's the point that he's making? The magnificence of the glory of God yet to be revealed is so much greater than anything that we could possibly suffer in this temporary world. It's not even comparable. It's not even barely mentionable. He says it's just momentary light affliction. Guys, that's the perspective that we're supposed to walk around. We live here now, but we should have that glory in our heart. It is allowed to bring us comfort. That brings us joy and peace as we go through this world. The next thing that Paul points out in our text here in verse 19 is that the suffering and corruption that entered our world at the fall is not limited to people, but it also took down all of creation. That creation fell, suffered, and was corrupted at that time too. Look at verse 19. It says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also might be set free from its slavery to corruption into freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So what it's telling us is that at the fall of humanity, it wasn't just humanity that fell, but nature itself shared in that judgment and curse. Following Adam's disobedience, one of the judgments that is pronounced there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, is cursed is the ground because of you. That's what the Bible says. It goes on right after that to say that the ground would then produce thorns and thistles, that man would have to toil painfully to produce his food by the sweat of his brow until he dies and he returns to the ground from which he was created from. That was the curse of Genesis chapter 3. That is to say that things are not now the way that God intended them to be including the natural world around us. And what the text is saying is that all of creation groans. It suffers. All of creation is anxiously longing to be set free from this corruption. And it tells us when that's going to happen. It's going to happen when God's children are set free and all things are made new. The book of Revelation talks about this at the end of the book of Revelation about the new heaven and the new earth to come. Listen to Revelation 21. It says this, And then I saw the new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. What did, what did that just say of our earth, where we live and the things that we all cling to so much, that we think are so important? It's all gone. It's all going to pass away. 
and there was no longer any sea. This is a little hard for surfers. But here's what I'm clinging to, guys. In the Bible, the word sea is used for the mass of Gentile unbelievers in multiple places. So I'm clinging to the fact that that's what it means. And in heaven, the waves are going to be absolutely epic. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready for his bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard the voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among man, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And when we get to chapter 22 in verse 3, it says this, No longer will there be a curse upon anything. And so Genesis chapter 3, the curse is pronounced. Revelation chapter 22, the curse is removed. And all things are restored to the way that God intended them to be. Now we live in the time in between. It says that the earth will be done away with. You can read there in 1 Peter chapter 3. It says a whole lot more about it, but I'll just give you the, the gist of it here in, first, in 2 Peter 3.10. Look at what it says. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we be in our holy conduct and godliness? Did you guys get that? That the earth and its works will be burned up. I know it's a big political issue. Somebody often asks me about global warming. And I'm not a scientist and I don't know. Maybe there's global warming, maybe there's not. I don't really know. But I know one day there will be global warming. Because I read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, and it says that all of the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. That, my friends, is global warming. And the new earth will be vastly different. It's an interesting thing, and we don't have the time to do the study of it now, but if you go through the Old Testament, there's a lot of information about this new earth and this whole process where God um, does away with the old earth and brings in a new earth and Sometimes it's pictured as clothing. God changes the garments of the earth. Sometimes it's different things. You see it throughout the Psalms. You see it through Isaiah. But what we find out is the earth is a vastly different place then. And this just kind of is an interesting picture to me in Isaiah chapter 11. It kind of gives us a sense that we have no idea of what is to come. It's going to be vastly different. Listen to Isaiah chapter 6 and just kind of a picture of what is to come. It says, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Like there's going to be a little boy with a pet lion walking. He's going to put his leash on a lion like, come on, little lion. 
They're going to be walking down the sidewalk. The cow also and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play at the hole of a cobra. The weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. Right? You're going to send your kids out to play. Hey, go play with the snakes or something. You know? Like, the earth will be restored to this state that we don't know. It's original intention. Where there wasn't any pain, where there wasn't any violence, where there wasn't any of those things. And what verse 23 says is that we should long for that. There should be a part of our heart that is longing for that final restoration with the Lord. Look at verse 23, Romans 8.23 there in your Bible. It says, not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, wanting eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our body. There's a few things in there, but let me try to unpack it real quickly. What it's saying is we have the Holy Spirit as first fruits. That means that's how we got saved. How you first got saved was the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the evidence that we belong to Christ, Romans 8.10. We talked about that two weeks ago. And the Holy Spirit is the pledge of your eternity. Ephesians 1.13 and 14 say this, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who, get, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does in our life is He seals us in Christ and He is now a pledge of what is future for us in glory with the Lord. But the Holy Spirit is just the down payment. That's what it's saying. Just that first installment, that small taste of what is to come, which is the glory to be revealed to us later, the fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord. And so what that does, though, for us now is it leaves us in this tension in this world now. Because what we are is we are an eternal people who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit living in a world that is failing and falling apart, broken and going to burn, right? The Holy Spirit has done this regenerating work on the inside so that you and I are now redeemed, born again, regenerated souls, but we're still living in a fallen world with corrupted, dying bodies, are we not? And so there is this tension between those two things. The indwelling Spirit, which gives us joy and life and eternity, the coming hope of glory, which fills our hearts with hope. But then we live in this world where there's tribulation, suffering, and these dying mortal bodies. And therefore, it says we groan within ourselves. I like the way the New Living Translation does verse 23. Look at what it says. We believers also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from this sin and suffering. And we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us 
our full rights as his adopted children, including new bodies that he has promised to us. Anybody in here ready for a new body? Like this one's falling apart, I'm telling you. And the point is this, that the process of renewal has begun because we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's the first fruits. But we're still in a broken, corrupted world. Our physical bodies are still failing and will ultimately die. And we still have this old sin nature that frustrates us, do we not? Isn't that what we were talking about back in Romans chapter 7, where Paul was, the very thing I want to do, I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do, that's the thing I, I, I end up doing. Oh, you know, oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? That frustration of having that old sin nature. And so what it's saying to us is we should long for the day. There should be something within every one of us Christians that longs for the day when all things are restored. When there is no more brokenness, no more disease, no more pain, no more tears, we should long for the day of glorified bodies. We should long for the day when that old sinful nature is finally removed. We should groan within ourselves. Why? Because groaning is a sign of dissatisfaction, isn't it? It's a sign of discomfort. It is a sign of frustration. And we should be dissatisfied with this world. We should be dissatisfied with the brokenness of this world. We should not be growing comfortable here. We should not feel as this is our home. We should feel as sojourners in a dark, corrupt land with a beautiful home waiting for us elsewhere. And so it's important, church, that you and I check our hearts to make sure that we're not growing too comfortable and too accustomed to the things of this world. We live in this world, and we often get attached to the things of this world, but we need to check our hearts. The things that we pursue, the things that we have latched onto, the unforgiveness that we're unwilling to give in this world because we're fighting for our own rights, all of the things, all of the things that we latch on to in this world. Here's the point, and we'll be done in just a second. This world is not our home. This world is our mission field. That's how we should approach this. This world is not our home. There should be a groaning within us. There should be a dissatisfaction and, and, and discomfort within us. This is not our home. This is our mission field. And so we ought to approach this world the way that Jesus approached this world. He came here to toil. He served here. He lived as an example here. And he sacrificed here to the glory of God. But he always knew that this was not his home. And everything that Jesus did in this world, he did with heaven in mind. You see where we're going with this. And that's the attitude that you and I should have. We should approach this world as Jesus did. We got to live here. So let's toil here. Let's serve here. Let's live in ex as an example here. Let's sacrifice here. But let's always remember, this is not our home. And everything we do here, let's do it with heaven in mind for kingdom purposes. I'm going to just read this passage and then we'll pray and be done. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. It says this. Just kind of let this wash over you. 
Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, it means if you belong to Him, you're a born-again believer, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Let's toil, let's serve, let's sacrifice in this world, but let's always remember this is not our home. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would build that into our hearts this morning because it is so very easy for us to get attached to the things of this world. There's so many things that we cling to that we make a big deal out of, that we allow to steal away our time and our attention and our affections that are really not a big deal at all. Things that will ultimately burn. But then there's these other bigger things. Kingdom things. Things of you, Lord, that should take priority in our lives. So we ask, Lord, that you would now this morning reprioritize our lives rightly according to the things that are important. And let us look upon all of those other things as just secondary things that will rust, that will rot, and that will ultimately burn. And let us live for that which will never burn, the things of you. Pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.